Well, that's one of the songs that I have on my phone and I go and walk to, and um, I absolutely love it. So it's called Break Every Chain. I'm guessing you got that part. Um, But it's by a band called Jesus Culture, and uh, I think these guys honestly do it better. And um, there's not a song that I don't enjoy, you know, listening to Joyce. Yeah. There's not a song that I don't enjoy listening to Joyce or really anybody on our worship team uh, sing, but I, I kind of feel like she was made for that one. I mean, that was just crazy amazing. And, you know, I hope that as you come in this morning and as you enter into worship, no matter why it is that you came, you know, or why you think you came, uh, that at the very least you leave today understanding that the Jesus that you've come to, hopefully that you've sung to, hopefully that you've prayed to, and now as we open his word, hopefully that you hear from is a Jesus who breaks chains. He just does. That's his wonder-working power. And it's what he wants to do in you. Now, he doesn't always break the chain, you know, when we want him to do it. And so many times we're like wrapped up in our chains going, Lord, could you... I see all the chains you're breaking for everybody else. And I'm thinking maybe, you know, now would be a good time for this one. And it's frustrating. It's difficult. And we have to trust his greater wisdom. And when he's going to do it, he doesn't always do it how we would like for him to do it. And we can always think of a hundred other ways that we would have rather that he do it. And yet he always does it when and how he should. I mean, not to totally, well, maybe to totally mix the metaphors for a second, I was reading an Andrew Murray, this has nothing to do with my sermon, by the way, but I was reading an Andrew Murray this week, and he's one of my favorite devotional writers, and he talks about how God is a husbandman for his people. He's a farmer, he is one who governs over like an orchard full of trees, the trees being you, fruit being the goal, except he's different from a normal farmer in that he governs over the winds, he governs over the rains, he governs over the storms, he governs over the sun, he prunes As he sees fit, he knows exactly what he wants to produce in you, when he wants to produce it, and when it is fully ripe. And then he realizes it. Our job is to submit to his wisdom, to offer our chains to him, if you will, just to go back, and to wait upon the Lord for him to do what he will in us. And he does that by his spirit and through his word. So we return today to that huge part of Luke's gospel that we've been in now for months and months and in which he really is kind of talking about this. He's talking to us about what it looks like or what it means to follow Jesus, how it is that Christ would form you, how it is that Christ would shape you, the chains that he would break off of you, the fruit that he would seek to produce Through you, Luke has dedicated 41% of his gospel specifically to that conversation. And as we return to that today, we come to a story that we find not only in the gospel of Luke, but also in the gospels of Matthew and of Mark. And it's a story about a young man, Matthew gives us that detail, who is fabulously wealthy, all three of the gospel writers agree on that, and who, as Luke will tell us today, is also a ruler, meaning almost certainly that he is part of the religious establishment that stood not just opposed, but violently opposed to Jesus. And at this point in the narrative is only about four chapters from crucifying him. He's part of those guys. And he's known to be. And yet, nevertheless, he's heard Jesus' teaching, and he is so powerfully moved by Jesus' teaching that, that Mark tells us that when Jesus finishes teaching, and he, you know, stands up from his stool or his stone or whatever it is that he's been sitting on, and he turns his back to the crowd, and he begins to walk off to go to the next town, this guy will not let him go. 
So he sees that the Lord is leaving and there's, there's this intensity and his heart will understand why in a second. And he bursts forth from the crowd, does what we've talked about. No Middle Eastern man, at least with any sense of dignity, would do. He runs. He runs over to Jesus and blocks his path lest he get away by bowing before him, kneeling. And in that culture, that was a sign of abject humility and utter subservience to the one before whom you bowed. And as he does this in his own hometown, like everybody's dumbfounded. I mean, there's just like this whole litany of things that that just didn't happen. And then that just didn't happen. And then that just didn't happen. So here is a very, very wealthy man bowing to a man with no money at all. That didn't happen. Here's a man of great status. Everybody knew who he was. Power, all that bowing to a man with no status. Well, that didn't happen. He ran to do it. That didn't happen. A very highly educated man bowing to a man with no formal education whatsoever. That didn't happen. But probably most profoundly, a part of the religious establishment of Israel that is only about four chapters away from crucifying Jesus, bowing to Jesus, and then asking him a religious question, maybe the religious question, actually, and again, doing it all publicly. You know, it's not like Jesus finished and he got up and he started to walk away and, you know, and the guy went, Psst, hey, you know, can we meet around the corner here because I'd like to bow before you and I have this incredible intensity within me and I've got to ask this question and just get it off my chest and I can't allow you to get away, but I don't want anybody to see that. He didn't do that. He didn't rent a restaurant, you know, and chase everybody out and host a meal or something for Jesus and his disciples before they hit the road, but really for the purpose of doing this privately. That's not what he does. He is so moved by the teaching of Jesus that he is willing, I think we'd have to say, to sacrifice quite a bit. And yet, as we'll see, there is still one thing that he will not sacrifice for Jesus. One thing he won't lay at Jesus' feet. He won't put it at the disposal of Jesus. He will not give up the worship and service of this for the worship and service of Jesus. He trusts in this thing. He values this thing more than he trusts and values in Jesus. And he trusts it to give him the kind of things that both the Bible and common sense teach us, life experience teach us, really only God can give. And the one thing for this guy is money. And one of the questions of this story is, all right, well, what is your one thing? Because following Jesus, as we're going to see as we work our way through this thing, means learning to trust in and to value Jesus more than everyone and everything else, and including money or, or whatever else it is, that in truth you worship. So we pick up our study today in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 18, where Luke says this. He says, and this rich young ruler who again has just publicly humiliated himself by bursting forth from his hometown crowd and running over to Jesus and blocking his path by falling before him on his knees in abject humility, then asked Jesus a question that first of all betrays a deep insecurity in the heart of this man over where he is going to spend eternity. He's clearly insecure about that. But secondly, it's a question that makes it clear that this rich young ruler really didn't understand the teaching that Jesus had just been giving to him and to the rest of the crowd on that day and that you and I looked at together last week. Because here's the question. He says, good, key word, teacher, also an interesting statement, 
Then here's the question. He says, what must I what? Because this is the key. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, why does that betray the fact that he didn't understand the teaching that we looked at last week? Because last week, Jesus came to us and he said in so many words, I'm just paraphrasing, hey, guys, there's nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. That is over. That's impossible. That cannot possibly happen. And here's why. Because when you see God for who he really is as opposed to who you suppose him to be, as opposed to who you create him to be in your heart or in your mind, no, no, no. When you see him for who he really is, as he reveals himself in his word, as he reveals himself in the world, and you get a glimpse, even just a glimpse of his holiness, of his perfections, of his beauties, suddenly words like righteousness are completely redefined for you. Words like holiness are completely redefined for you. Words like the word good, as in, hey, you know what, Lord? I have lived a good life. I mean, as I compare myself with pretty much everybody around me, I'm thinking I'm at least in the top 50%, if not the top 25. So surely then, Lord, as you look down upon humanity and you have to decide, well, who's going to have eternal life and who's not? I mean, who gets into heaven and who doesn't? I've got to be part of that crowd, right? When you see the Lord for who he is, you realize what good really is. And you realize, wait a minute, it's not defined by how I compare with everybody else. It's defined by the holiness and the perfections and the beauties of God himself. And the comparison to make is me to him. And I don't fare quite as well in that comparison. And what we realize when that happens is that the only thing we can do is break forth from the crowd of this world and run to Jesus and block his path and kneel before him in abject humility, this one who is God-made man, who looked down upon an undeserving humanity and who in love clothed himself in our humanity to live the good-as-God life that we have not, and then to lay that good-as-God life down as a sacrifice, satisfying his own justice by receiving for us the due penalty of every sin of every person who bows before him and confesses their need of that forgiveness and healing and receives then his free gift of eternal life. And as an aside, in that process... We are also massively relieved. And of what? Of the distress that is ours over where we're going to spend eternity. Because here's the deal. If you think that you're going to spend eternity based upon how good you are compared to everyone else, you know, what you do and don't do and how it all stacks up in the end, how do you ever know how you compare and how do you know whether you've ever done enough. And so then, driven by that tension, I think, this guy bursts forth from the crowd. He runs over to Jesus. He blocks his path and stays his, you know, direction. And and he kneels before him. And then he asks this very revealing question. Good teacher, he says, what must I, what, do to inherit eternal life? And now notice what Jesus does, because he challenges him on his use of the word good. And he does that because, look, until you realize that good is not good in comparison with everyone else, but good is good only in comparison with God... You don't see your need for the Lord. And so he says to him, essentially, all right, when you say good, do you mean in comparison with other people, or do you mean good in comparison with the Lord himself? Because until you get that that's the comparison, you don't realize that the only thing you can do is trust in what he's done. And so Jesus said to him, why 
Do you call me good? And then he gives to him and to us the proper definition of good. He could not be more clear. He says, no one is good except who? God alone. So he's saying, guys, God is the standard and nobody else meets it. Jesus looks at this guy and he says, look, no one is good except God alone. And you, Mr. Rich Young Ruler, didn't just call me good God. You, you called me good teacher, which tells me at least two things. Number one, you don't really know who I am because I am, in fact, God. And good God would have been a perfect designation for me. But since you don't know who I am and you attached this word good to the word teacher, it tells me as well that you don't understand what good is. And so then in an effort to show this man that he, the rich young ruler, is not in fact good, Jesus begins working through the Ten Commandments with this guy. The Ten Commandments, which are what? They are a reflection of the moral character of the Lord God himself. He's revealing to him the holiness of God in an effort to show this man that he's not holy and that he's not good. And so he says to this guy, Jesus does, you know the Ten Commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And then at least from my perspective, it seems as if this guy just interrupts him. Jesus is making his way through the list and this rich young ruler then says to Jesus, I think, hey, you know what, you can just stop right there. I know all the Ten Commandments. I memorized those when I was like four. And here's what you need to know, Lord. All these I have kept from my youth. And then, of course, when Jesus heard him say that, he said, Well, you know, apparently you missed my Sermon on the Mount because, I mean, you'd be far more enlightened if that was the case. Like, you can get this on iTunes and whatever, but little preview or a little review for you. If you had heard my Sermon on the Mount, then you would understand that the law of God doesn't just govern what you do out here. It governs what you do in here. So you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit murder. Okay, yeah, don't kill anybody out here. Got that. Feeling pretty good about it at the moment, but that's not enough. Don't kill anybody in here either. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Okay, don't do that out here, but don't do that in here either. All right, the Lord doesn't do that, but what he does instead is he looks into this man's heart and he sees that there's one thing that this guy will not sacrifice for Jesus. He will not lay it at the feet of Jesus. He will not put it at the disposal of Jesus. He will not give up the worship and service of it in favor of the worship and service of Jesus. There is one thing that he looks to to do for him the things that, in fact, only God can do for him. And therefore, he trusts in it and values it even above Jesus. And the Lord goes straight to that. He says, one thing you still lack. Go and sell all that you have and distribute the proceeds from that sale to the poor, and now get this, and you will have treasure in heaven. Now, I want to ask you, how does that strike you? I mean, is that like a consolation prize, and you will have treasure in heaven? Well, I guess I at least have that. Do you ever think about that? Listen, if there is a God, if there is a heaven, if there is a treasure in heaven, if you can use the wealth of this world, which is fleeting, which is fickle, which is subject to all kinds of corruptions, which is yours for a tiny little bit of time in comparison to all of eternity, and then you leave it all behind, if you can use it in such a way as to store up eternal treasure that actually is yours and for all of eternity and isn't subject to any of those things, is that not the greatest investment opportunity 
ever. It is. And when we don't engage in it, we've got to ask ourselves why. You know, that's not a consolation prize. Hey, go sell all that you have, give the proceeds to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Like Jesus, I think, is sincerely jacked at the opportunity for this guy to do that. And then he says, and come and follow me. And you're like, well, wait a minute. Is he saying that if I'm going to follow him, then I have to sell everything that I have, distribute the proceeds to the poor, you know, give it to the causes of Christ in this world? And I mean, you know, I'll have treasure in heaven. I get that. But is that a requirement? I mean, what's going on here? What What Jesus is doing is he's looking into the heart of this man who thinks that he has actually kept all of the Ten Commandments. And he's saying, really? Let's start with number one. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Okay, now let me show you who or what your God is. Go sell everything. Give it to the poor. Listen, awesome investment. You'll have treasure in heaven. You believe that? And then come and follow me. You haven't lost. You've massively gained. And he won't do it. For Luke says, but when this rich young ruler heard these things, he became very sad. The word means actually distressed. It's a big emotional word. He's like staggered. It even speaks of being disoriented by this. It's like he got punched in the face in some sense by this. It has set him back. He's having to deal with the conflict between his desire for this answer and eternal life and all of this, and then the answer that Jesus has given to him, which causes him to deal with his idolatry, to deal with his one thing, to deal with his real God. So when the rich young ruler heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And then Matthew and Mark tell us that, you know, he got up off of his knees and dusted off his robes, turned his back, and walked away. Walked away from the sole source of forgiveness and healing and eternal life in all of the universe and from the singularly unique opportunity to become the 13th, if you will, disciple of the Lord, the creator and sustainer of all of the universe. And in doing so, he proved that he massively undervalued Jesus and massively overvalued His wealth. His wealth is what he should have turned his back on. Jesus, seeing this, and seeing that this rich young ruler had become sad and walked away, then said to the crowd, he said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel. And please understand, they didn't have zoos in those days, you know. And a camel was the largest animal in their part of the world. They didn't have elephants walking around. He picks the biggest animal possible. It is easier for a camel, he says, to go through the eye of a needle, the tiniest of holes, than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And I think we ought to stop and say, well, why exactly is that? I mean, what is it about money that is so spiritually dangerous 
Because it's not just spiritually dangerous for that guy way back then, it's spiritually dangerous for us too. We're subject to the same peril is the idea, and there are lots and lots of reasons that we could develop, but I just want to give you two, the first of which is that money is spiritually dangerous because it promises us the kind of security that only God can provide. And so then in the end, when we really need it, it doesn't deliver. And the Bible's not shy about that. So, for example, in Proverbs 18, verse 11, it says that a rich man, his wealth is his strong city. It's what he trusts in for his security. You can see that. And it's like a high wall of protection is the idea, but only where? In his imagination. It's not actually what it represents. It doesn't fulfill what it promises. And anyone who has ever watched a person of means suffer and die from cancer knows that. Or watch their marriage die knows that. Or, or, or watch their relationship with their kids die knows that. Or watch their integrity or conscience die knows that. The most valuable things in this life are not the things that money can buy and they're not things that money can fix. And for the record, there is absolutely nothing wrong with being wealthy. Some of the greatest biblical heroes were massively wealthy. Abraham was like a king in regard to his possessions. But his possessions did not possess him. Here's what he didn't do. He didn't trust in his wealth to provide him with things that only God could provide him with, like security, for example. And so then a rich man's wealth is his strong city, and it's like a high wall of protection, but only in his imagination. However, if you go to the previous verse, verse 10, the one that comes just before it, we read this. The name of the Lord, which stands for the Lord God himself, is a strong tower. It's not like one. And the righteous man who has fallen to his knees before Jesus because he has recognized that he's not good by the real standard, which is the standard of God himself. And he has said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And by the blood of Christ, he has been forgiven and thus declared by God to be righteous. The righteous man runs into it, into the name of God, into the Lord, if you will. And in the Lord is the idea. He is safe, and not just in his imagination, but in fact, and not just in this life, but for all of eternity. And so then money is spiritually dangerous, first of all, because it promises us the kind of security that only God can provide. But then secondly, it's spiritually dangerous because it promises us the kind of significance that only God can provide. And as I thought about this, I thought, you know, the bare naked truth, I think, is that at least for many of us, if not most of us, money has become the measuring stick by which we measure our own personal worth and significance, which is why when we are rolling in it, we feel really, really good about ourselves. And when we lose it, we feel worthless. Can you relate to that? And so we chase it and live for it and sacrifice all kinds of things for it only to get to the end of our lives and to pull out that measuring stick and to realize just how many other people have so much more of it than we do. And how insignificant we still feel no matter whatever it is that we've amassed. And to get to the end of our lives too, I think, oftentimes, and if we're honest, to admit that what we've sacrificed in our pursuit of it has really actually been more significant than what we've gained. And now we'll leave entirely behind. And the Bible speaks to this too. 
Proverbs 28, verse 11, it says, and a rich man, meaning, again, not merely somebody who has a lot of wealth. That's not the point. It's somebody who trusts in his wealth to give him what only God can actually provide. A rich rich man is wise, it says, but only in his own eyes. That's the point. He's not wise in fact, but he thinks that he's wise. And the reason that he thinks that he's wise is because he's been able to amass great wealth. And so he assumes, and it's a false assumption, that because he has the wisdom of wealth making, he's wise in every other area of life as well. But he's not. And so what has his wealth done? It has given him an inflated opinion of his abilities, of his wisdom, of his significance, of his importance. A rich man is wise, but only in his own eyes. But the poor man who has, who has understanding, that is to say, who is truly wise and who incidentally might just be poor because he sells his possessions and gives to the poor. Because he recognizes that there is a heavenly investment strategy that the man from heaven who unites heaven and earth alone can speak to authoritatively has told us about and has said is wise. The poor man who has understanding will find him out. He'll see through the foolishness of the rich man's so-called wisdom. And the truly wise man is the one who understands that significance comes not by what you can create for yourself by means of wealth or any other way, but it comes through your status as a son or daughter of the king, which is a gift to you and ought to bring us to humility through faith in Christ. And so anyway, Jesus looks at this rich young ruler who thought that he was good but wasn't. He thought that he was secure because he had great wealth, but it doesn't and it cannot give him that kind of security. He thought that he was significant because he had great wealth. And yet significance can't be found there. And Jesus in grace seeks to disabuse this man of that entire mess by saying to him, hey, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute the proceeds to the poor and then you will have treasure in heaven. Like, that's actually a great idea. And then come and follow me. But this rich young ruler, when he heard these things, became very sad for he was extremely rich and he trusted in his great wealth to provide him with the things that only God in the end can provide him. And so he got up off his knees, he dusted off his robes, he turned his back on the Lord and he walked away from, of all people, Jesus At which point Jesus, seeing that this rich young ruler had become sad and walked away, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then those who heard him say this despaired. I mean, they said, well, then who can be saved? Because here's what they intuited. Here's what they understood. They understood that, you know what? Truth be known, we all have our one thing. Maybe it's money, maybe it's something else. And then Jesus says this, and it's the gospel, really. He said, look, what is impossible with man is possible with God. That is to say, it is possible for God, by His Spirit and through His Word, to give you an accurate vision of Himself. To allow you to to get a glimpse of his holiness and, and of his perfections and of his beauties and all of these things of the standard of good that actually is the standard of good. 
and to reveal to you in that moment that you don't meet it. It's a moment of humility, but it's a moment of relief if your response to that, that he himself inspires, is for you to burst forth from the crowd of your little world, even if that brings you shame, incidentally, and run to Christ publicly. We're to live for him publicly and to fall to your knees before him, to confess your need of him and to find in him forgiveness and eternal life. All that you're looking for, thereby being relieved, incidentally, of the great distress of, hey, you know, I mean, if it's all based on how I do, I mean, how am I doing? And how am I ever going to know? How can I have peace? But it's possible, too, for the Lord by his Spirit in the same way to give you a vision of Jesus' infinite value and infinite worth for him to impress upon you that all of the things that you're looking for in all of your chasings and all of your pursuits and all of your one things, if you will, which just collect for us, do they not? Can only be found in him. And of the great privilege that it is, therefore, then, to be his disciple and to learn to trust in and to value him above everything and everyone else. So that, I think, is the calling. You know, following Jesus means learning to do that. And money was that guy's one thing. So here's what I want you to think about. What's yours? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come to you, our Lord, with our things. God, with the things that we do not merely possess, but with the things that in turn, it seems, possess us. They bind us up. They chain us to themselves, and they make us their slaves, be that money, be that relationships, whatever that may be. Lord, I pray that this morning you might inspire us in our hearts, O God, to come to you, to debase ourselves before the King of Kings, which is our proper position, to lay these things at your feet as being less valuable than you and by magnitudes of order, and as things not to be trusted in. Lord, to claim the forgiveness, the eternal life that is ours solely through faith in you, in what you've done for us already, to sense and know the joy of the security of the realization that we're good. And God, to begin to realize and to experience the reality that all that we're looking for, we have in our Savior. Teach us these things, Lord, that we might live in such a way as to show this world that there is one who can be trusted and there is one who has greater value than everything and everyone else. Do these things for your glory and for the good of this, your people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning as we continue in worship, we have the privilege of coming to the Lord's table and... um, It's really a great day to be able to do that because it calls us to deal with our one thing. Does it not? I mean, first of all, it's a table of faith. So it is a table for people who have realized they are just hopelessly not good. 
but that Jesus is infinitely and perfectly good. That he has laid down, as the emblems of this table represent, his life in love. That through faith in him, we might be washed and made new and made clean. If that's your testimony this morning, you're not only invited to come to this table, you're commanded by Christ to come to this table in remembrance of what he has done for you, but in remembrance of what he will yet do. A day is coming when every chain finally will fall from the whole of us and from the whole of creation. He's calling you to look forward to that too. And in this day, in coming to this table first, you're to confess your sin. You're to be honest with God about yourself in light of who he is. You're to take in a message like this. And you know what? If money is your God and that's what your life revolves around and even Jesus is caused to take a back seat to that, to deal with that. Or if it's something else, then to deal with that, whatever it may be. But what repentance is, is not, you know what, Lord, I feel sorry about that and you know, I hope to get to it someday and maybe someday I'll be better. Repentance is instead of turning your back on Jesus and walking away, it's turning your back on that sin and walking away in real and practical ways. I'm going to change this by the power of your spirit and in community with the brothers and sisters that you've given me in Christ, Lord, for the first time, I'm going to make a break from this and stagger away from it that I might stagger on toward you and find in you what this has promised but isn't ever going really to deliver. So consider those things before you come to the table this morning and then come to the table and enjoy the emblems of your salvation and be reminded of the love of Christ for you and of his great deliverance. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, He says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this bread. Lord, we do thank you for this juice. God, we thank you for the Savior whom this represents and who by his Spirit meets with us here at this table. We pray, Lord, that we might do business with you this morning, that we might confess our sin to you this morning, that we might resolve to walk away from it and toward you this morning, and then come toward you this morning and receive and meet with you here. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.